0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, but they heard that he was alive and that and had been seen by her. They would not believe it. After these things, he appeared to the other form in in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents they will in their hands, and they will drink any deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into the heaven, and sat at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, You Lord Christ.
1: Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So with this past Thursday marking the 40th day after Easter, that means that it was Ascension Day in the church calendar when we commemorate the ascension of Christ into heaven 40 days after He rose from the dead. And so today I've chosen to push forward the lectionary passages that were appointed for Thursday's Feast of the Ascension. As you can see, our first lesson was taken from the opening of the book of Acts where Jesus' ascension is described. But appointed for our gospel reading is the final passage from the gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. It was likely appointed because it includes a description of Jesus' ascension in verse 19. And we looked at this a few years back, but this morning I want to revisit this passage. What's always really interested me about this gospel passage is not so much what it says about the ascension, but the subject it raises of, of, about how Mark's gospel ends. If you'll look with me on your bulletin insert, instead of what we read from uh, in a few minutes ago, on the sermon supplement on the bulletin insert, I've given you all of Mark 16 And you'll see a note after verse 8 that states that in some of the earliest known manuscripts of the book of Mark, they end at that point, at verse 8. Verses 9 through 20 are nowhere to be found. And most every contemporary translation of the Bible will have some sort of note like this because the scholarly consensus today overwhelmingly agrees that verses 9 through 20 are likely not original to Mark's gospel, but were instead added on sometime during the second century. So I want to begin by taking a few minutes to explain some of the evidence that has led scholars to this conclusion, that verses 9 through 20 were a later addition to Mark before then considering why on earth it matters, why we should care, what difference it makes. First of all, you should understand that the oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament that we have, we mean the world, you know, has in hand, it's not buried somewhere or decayed, the oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament we have dates only to the 4th century. However, there are incomplete fragments of the New Testament that some of which are much older, We have about 25,000 different fragments and some of them date as far back as 125 AD. These are fragments from scrolls made of parchment paper. Well, of all the fragments that include Mark 16, all of the earliest ones abruptly end at verse eight, which you'll notice on the insert is right after Mark's description of Jesus' resurrection. You may recall that verse 8 is where our gospel passage concluded on Easter Sunday. Now, some of the earliest manuscripts that do have verses 9 through 20 actually have a note next to those verses, though, that attributes that section of Mark to a very early church figure named Ariston the Presbyter, or Ariston the Priest is what that means. In other words, there are notes in really old manuscripts that indicate that rather than verses 9 through 20 being written by Mark, this priest named Ariston added them on perhaps as late as a century after Mark wrote his gospel. And we'll get to why he might have done that in a moment. Now, rest assured that the notion that someone other than Mark wrote verses 9 through 20, perhaps as much as 100 years after, Mark wrote them in around 60 A.D. This is nothing for us to get been out of shape about. What I primarily want you to notice from the copious number of endnotes I put on your insert, which probably doesn't surprise you too much at this point. I've been here 10 years, right? Y'all are... (laughs) What I want you to notice is that whomever wrote 9 through 20 took almost everything he wrote, or she wrote, took almost everything from the other three gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, which were written all written later than Mark, or took it from the book of Acts, which was Luke's sequel to his gospel, which you'll recall describes the early church from the ascension onward. However, I'll draw your attention in particular to verse 18. It includes an exception to this. It includes the one exception that we don't see evidence of in other places in the Holy Scriptures. But before I explain that, notice in verse 18 where Jesus says infamously that those who believe in him will, quote, pick up serpents with their hands. I say infamously because there is a small minority of Christians, particularly some from the part of the country where I am from, who have mistaken this passage to indicate that Jesus is assigning to believers a miraculous power over snakes. Therefore, some of these individuals incorporate handling poisonous snakes into their worship services. Sand Mountain, Alabama is only about 50 miles from Birmingham where I went to school. But in many ways it's a world away from Birmingham as it is ground zero for this practice of snake handling where people in these churches die literally every year. And almost all who have handled for, you know, most of their lives have suffered bites at some point. So I don't know if they're starting to doubt this verse or what. I'm sure they would explain, sadly, that these incidents are due to some lack of faith. But I would explain it as a prime example of the many hazards of reckless and uninformed interpretations of Scripture. Because you see, rather than endorsing snake handling, Mark 16, 18 is simply one of eight references that the writer makes in this passage to words or events that the book of Acts reports occurring among the apostles in the years after Jesus' ascension. In this instance, as you can see from footnote M on the flip side of your flyer, M is in mountain, uh, M is in sand mountain. <laughs> this is a reference to an episode recounted in Acts 28 when Paul is actually bitten by a poisonous viper, and yet miraculously God spares him. He suffers no harm. But as I alluded to a moment ago, verse 18 also contains the one instance in verses 9 through 20 of a reference to something that isn't attested anywhere else in in parts of Scripture written later. And that is when Jesus says, quote, And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Uh, Don't try this at home, by the way. (laughs) As I've noted in footnote N, N, the writings of Papias, though, whose years overlapped with some of the apostles and would later become a bishop, his writings include just such an account about a believer named Justus Barsabbas who drank deadly poison. I'm not sure if perhaps he was forced to do this as some form of persecution or, I mean, I don't know what led him to have to or choose to drink poison. Yet, Papias tells us that by the grace of the Lord, he suffered no harm. So given that the provenance of all the different references in verses 9 through 20 are either biblical, historical, or both, there is no need for us to fret about it being included in our Bible from a a credibility standpoint. But it's also not hard to imagine why someone like this Ariston in the 2nd century would feel compelled to give Mark an ending that wasn't so abrupt to give Mark an ending that's more like the other three Gospels. And yet there is a potential downside of verses 9 through 20 being included and accepted as part of Mark's original Gospel. And that is that its inclusion can mask for us, sorry, I know that's probably a trigger word at this point, can um, cover for us, make us miss what Mark might have been up to with the way he originally intended for his gospel to end. One can imagine that whomever wrote 9 through 20 felt like the version of Mark they'd received that ended at verse 8 had just too abrupt of an ending. Just humor me for a moment as I read how the final eight verses of Mark's gospel would finish if it ended at verse 8, just beginning at verse 1 there in the insert. Verse 1 When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, or Salome, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's it. Curtains, right? And don't forget that that for perhaps a decade or more, Mark's gospel was the only gospel that existed, the only one written yet. Mark was written in 60 A.D., and the next one of the four, probably Matthew or Luke, was... Written maybe 10, 20 years later. So you can imagine then why, maybe 100 years later, once all four Gospels had been completed, why someone looked over at Mark's Gospel and thought, you know, I feel like we could fill this ending out a little bit. Now, there are a few who suggest that perhaps the original ending of Mark was lost, which is possible that this new ending was written to replace it. But more and more scholars are being persuaded, based upon looking at the way Mark approached his gospel as a whole, more and more are being persuaded that such an abrupt ending at verse 8 is exactly what Mark intended. And so with, with what's left of my time this morning, I want us to just consider what it means that Mark likely intended to end his gospel essentially with the climax of these women discovering that Jesus had risen from the dead, followed essentially by an ellipses, right, a, a dot, 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 and then it's over. Some have said it would make Mark comparable to a, a narrator in a play who just walks off stage mid-sentence. So, why would Mark do this? What would compel him to craft his gospel in this way? Well, Mark's abrupt ending would, first of all, serve as a summons to us, the reader or hearer, as an invitation to respond ourselves. What are we going to do with this news that Jesus has risen? See, while ending at 8 would have certainly left the reader wondering about what all occurred after Easter morning, it also positions readers in any age, including our own. It kind of puts us all on an equal footing, right? An equal footing with those women who even found the empty tomb. So that rather than being told about the impact of Jesus' resurrection in a way that we remain sort of like an audience watching a play... We are instead invited to discover for ourselves. Could it be true? And what implications does this good news have for our own lives? Well, I guess I'll tell you. Mark Mark would be mad at me. but You know, what the news that Jesus rose from the dead leaves us with is the implication that a relationship with the risen Lord is a possibility albeit now it would be a a spiritual relationship since he's ascended, right? Therefore, rather than being told what difference Jesus' resurrection eventually made for these women and the apostles, Mark's ending at verse 8 invites us to learn experientially what sort of difference following Jesus and learning from him the way of sacrificial love to discover what sort of difference that really will make in our lives. So it seems Mark was placing the onus on us to finish the story, or better yet, to find out how this story ends through joining into the story and becoming part of the story in our own lives. Of course, as we learned last week, the gospel of Jesus Christ is also not intended to terminate with us, to kind of... We receive it and it stops there. Instead, as we, we discover what life-changing good news Jesus' resurrection is and how it changes our lives if we allow it to, if we allow him to, his intention is that we can then share with others about how our lives have been changed by this news. Just as the angel directs the women in verse 7 and in the other gospels. And this addition to Mark reports Jesus is saying, quote, go into, verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation so that others might believe and be saved from condemnation to inherit the same eternal life, the eternal quality of life that his resurrection has opened to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.